Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. It is Friday, October the 18th, 2019. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It is, it's just my pleasure and my thrill to be with you this morning. So thank you so much. Uh, I want you to know that in case you haven't heard yet, the Brits have actually reached an agreement with the EU on Brexit. Tomorrow, in what uh, Dr. David Aikman told us on Monday, would be a very rare Saturday session of the British Parliament. Uh, the math looks tight. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson may well prevail in getting the Brexit vote that he promised to deliver to the British people, who you will remember voted to get their country out of the EU. And so we'll obviously talk about that on Monday with David Aikman, but just thought I would be sure you knew about that. Meanwhile, here in the United States, one of the things to certainly be aware of as Christians is the death of Congressman Elijah Cummings. And no matter what your political bent, um, Elijah Cummings is a brother in Christ, and he served the concerns of the people who elected him to Congress. And the concerns of the people in his district, uh, in his district of Baltimore, may not be your concerns. You may not share the concerns of those individuals. But that's actually the point of representative government. And so you're going to hear Elijah Cummings described in the coming days in a number of ways as a moral conscience. You're also going to hear him described as uh, a man who was able to work across the aisle. He has genuine friends among Republicans and Democrats. That's a pretty rare thing today um, in, in political circles. And we need more of that, not less. And so we want to honor his service, even as we grieve today with those who knew and loved him best. And so this is going to really, I think, provide a raw opportunity for each of us if and when we find ourselves in the company of people who might be tempted to dance today upon his grave, we have to stand up and we have to speak out for civility and the honor of the deliberative representative process for which Elijah Cummings served for so long. And we have to acknowledge that if we're Christians, Elijah Cummings is one with whom we're going to spend eternity. And so when we talk about crossing the aisle and when we talk about those with whom um, we are genuine brothers and sisters in the bond of in the bond of Christ, Representative Cummings is one of those people. You may not know this. Um, his parents were sharecroppers on the very land that their ancestors were slaves and they passed their faith down to their son and he made that faith his own. He was a proud member of the New Psalmist Baptist Church and often invited other people to Sunday morning services. And when former Speaker Gingrich swore Elijah Cummings into office, uh, Cummings' dad, whose name was Robert Sr., was nearby. And with tears in his eyes, he's recorded, he's on recorded saying, isn't this the place where they used to call us slaves? And so... Um, I want you to be mindful of that. Elijah Cummings, when he was a little boy, would run home from church in order that he could hear Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio. Friends, this is a brother who has finished the race and kept the faith and is all the way home now in the father's house. Let us be mindful of that today. 
All right, next up, one of the aspects of the Democratic debate that we have not yet discussed this week is the issue of life, specifically abortion. So I'm going to have that conversation up next uh, with Matthew Hawkins here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Matthew Hawkins is in the house. You can find find him on Twitter at mthawk. You can also find him online, matthewthawkins.com. Matt, welcome back. Thank you very much, Carmen. Glad to be back. All right. So last week uh, or earlier this week, gosh, you know, I kind of lose track of time. I'll just admit. All right. So earlier this week, uh, we we witnessed a wow full stage of people who want to serve as the next president of the United States. The Democrats had a debate. There were 12 of them on stage. We have talked uh, across a number of subjects here from that debate already this week, but one of the subjects we have waited to discuss with you is the issue of life, specifically abortion. So as a lead into that, um, we're just going to play some audio of California Senator Kamala Harris at the Democratic Mm -hmm. debate earlier this week. Women have been given the responsibility to perpetuate the human species. Our bodies were created to do that. It is her body. It is her right. It is her decision. Okay, Matt, I got to admit to you, when I hear somebody say our bodies were created to do Mm -hmm. that, um, that sounds like somebody uh, acknowledging the reality of a creator and creation and, uh, and a created body. And then in the very next breath, she instead throws off any such authority of a creator and claims the absolute autonomy of the female individual. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Um, but this is not new. It's uh, front and center and uh, maybe more mainstream attention this week. But it's not new um, for uh, particularly kind of this, I don't know, secularization uh, part of our culture to steal basically language from a creator God. Um, and one, uh, when you want to uh, talk about how uh, bodies are made and when you buy into the whole evolutionary process, you, you can't talk about the process without stealing language that indicates a creator. <laughs> uh, you can't say that evolution created or, uh, you know, uh, our bodies were created without, like you say, indicating that there was a creator. So I think that it's helpful for us as Christians to pay attention to language and for us to point out um, when language that really does belong to uh, the truth, the understanding that we live in a created order and there is a creator and he made us on purpose and for a purpose and part, part of that purpose is reproduction. I mean, she actually acknowledges that in her statement and then she turns right around and throws off the creator as if uh you know as if i now have absolute total autonomous control um or authority over over my body and the life of of any human being who might be conceived within it talk with us a little bit about the euphemisms that we hear used by the left uh, when we're when we're having this life conversation yeah. Well, and the, the irony is here that uh, to some extent, I, as as a as a guy, as a man, I don't 
uh, disagree entirely with her assertion there uh, that women ought to have um, uh, purview and, and discretion over what happens to their body. Uh, generally speaking, it's certainly a truth that we understand and underscore more so now in light of the Me Too movement. Um, so some of it, uh, to an extent, uh, we agree. Uh, the question, though, uh, like my friend Scott Klusendorf, who's a, a pro-life apologist, says we have to focus on the key question, which is what is the unborn? And if it's something other than um, just an appendage, just a body part, or just a clump of cells, as it has been referred to in the past, uh, we we need to have other questions to ask. Um, when a, a human being um, is present, uh, is it a separate human being? Um, and if so, what does that entail for us? We believe, of course, that um, human life begins in the womb, and we believe it begins at conception and uh, more narrowly at fertilization. And so I think, uh, objectively speaking, it's the only point uh, scientifically that we can uh, make an objective uh, recommendation on, that we can conceive that this is when life begins. Every other point in the development of a human a human baby is subjective to say that uh, this is when life begins or that's when life begins. Uh, but on the rhetoric, uh, Emma Green in The Atlantic has a great piece uh, that does a little bit of an analysis of um, the terminology that the Democrat primary candidates used this week. And uh, they, her headline is, Just Don't Call It Abortion. And so the euphemism is uh, reproductive rights or a woman's right to choose. And only a couple candidates actually mention the word abortion. Uh, namely, uh, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, who um, tried, who has tried. That. I actually, hey, um, oh, yeah, I, I think yeah, we I have, have that clip. Let's uh, let's listen to the comments of Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard from uh, from Hawaii on this topic. I support codifying Roe v. Wade while making sure that during the third trimester, abortion is not an option unless the life or severe health consequences of a woman are at risk. All right, Matt, there you go. Right. She said the word. Yeah. She said she said the word number one, and uh, frankly, given the spectrum of uh, the the tight spectrum, not not very broad spectrum of Democrat candidates right now, uh, she's closer to most of the American public on this issue. Most Americans, when polled, they don't want Roe v. touched per se or overturned as uh, as is commonly discussed, um, but they do want restrictions, and they certainly want restrictions during the third trimester. Uh, it's barbaric, barbaric by uh, any measure, and I think most Americans get that. Uh, the polling is consistently high that uh, Americans want, uh, desire, uh, restrictions on abortion that late. Um, and that's a starting point. You know, I, you know, uh, Gabbard uh, is unlikely, I think, to make it past the fray uh, and become the DNC uh, candidate uh, next year. Uh, but we need more Gabbards in the Democrat Party, frankly. Uh, we need help to move that party uh, even just a smidgen incrementally uh, towards a position of life. Uh, so, you know, I'm clearly not with Gabbard where she is uh, with respect to law and policy, um, but she's closer to me than everybody else on that stage. Mm. All right. You and I are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about something that almost happened in California. And the only reason that it didn't happen was fear that it might advantage um, pro-life pregnancy centers in some right. communities. But there's a California student ID card uh, bill that that the governor vetoed. And I want to talk about that. That's up next. Matthew Hawkins is here with me and we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment.
conversation with Matthew Hawkins. You can find him on Twitter at MTHawk. Matt, so in California, um, which the reason, one of the reasons we pay attention to California is California has real power to lead the nation in terms of setting precedents for things. I mean, it's it's mammoth in terms of its cultural influence. So when California to that that point, if I can interject, uh, the 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 person uh, that we're going to talk about here, Governor Newsom, if you recall, talking about leading the way uh, when he was, I think, mayor of San Francisco, he was the one that started issuing against the state law, uh, marriage licenses for uh, gay and lesbian uh, weddings. And so that was years and years before the Obergefell case at the Supreme Court. So uh, talk about uh, leading the way on that. Not only do you have right now California, the state, uh, as a a one who leads the way, but also a a particular uh, civil servant who who, uh, has had significant influence on American politics. So, yeah, thanks for that reminder. I do think that I lose track sometimes of just how far back I need to look into into right. history related to some individuals. I was reminded of that this week, actually, in in discussing and having a conversation with a friend about Paula White, which maybe yeah. would be something we should talk about next week. Sure. Um, uh, so Governor Newsom vetoed a bill yeah. that would have required every uh, school district in California to provide photo IDs for every student. And I actually thought, wow, maybe he vetoed it because uh, there's something about, you know, everybody having a photo ID that's a problem. No, no. The problem was that the IDs were going to require there be contact information for the closest or nearest um, what I would regard as abortion clinic. But that wasn't the language wasn't precise enough. And Newsom was concerned that some pro-life pregnancy center information might just end up on these ID cards. Right. Uh, the state ID was going to require phone numbers to for students to get a hold of some sort of sexual reproductive uh, uh, um, uh, resources in their community, and uh, apparently the language was not stringent and narrow enough for Governor Newsom. It wasn't he he didn't veto this because he thought oh. Uh, this is uh, not helpful for um, or not doesn't give equal access to pro-life uh, clinics. It's it was too open for the possibility that some local schools in some districts might uh, put the number there on for, say, a local uh, pregnancy resource center that is pro-life and might recommend something other than abortion. So he actually vetoed the thing after, mind you, it passed the Senate or the California legislature, vetoed it because it was not narrow enough. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see, I, you know, from a policy nerd perspective, you kind of wonder what the language of the law has to be um, to facilitate that kind of requirement for student IDs. But this, you know, this thing, Carmen, starts at uh, seventh grade, seventh grade and up for all state school institutions. It's pretty, would have been pretty sweeping. And as we know, uh, these things uh, just don't die uh, with the veto pen. They they will uh, they will rise from the ashes in future legislation. So, uh, you know, California parents here uh, dodged a big one. Um, but it's just a, another another narrow. You know, it's kind of obscure, right? I mean, for the the idea that uh, the the abortion battle is being played out on the ID cards of public school students. That's pretty remarkable when when you stop and think about it. Um, not, uh, the phone number aside, but this is the territory where the pro-abortion industry wants to go. It's it's remarkable. 
so I will I'll admit to you that when I heard this story, um, I one of the questions that I immediately had was, does California require photo IDs for voters? And and the answer is no. And so yeah. the I find the whole thing very curious. Like we we want to be sure that we can, you know, control kids and influence kids. But we don't really yeah. want to also be sure that we can identify necessarily the citizenship of people who are voting in the elections. Uh, uh, it's just the it's just one of those places. Matt, it's ironic. I, yeah. yeah. Well, irony is such a nice word for it. I was thinking right. other words. Um, right. It's so hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's you're, it's pretty. You're it's, nicer than I am. Well, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be, it's Friday morning, you know, it's fall. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, um, I got one other California related thing to bring up. Um, and, uh, I didn't put this in the list of things we were going to talk about. So if you're not prepared to talk about it, it's okay. There's a case a being fastball. heard. All right. There's a case being heard right now in a California courtroom. Um, abortionists made some very significant revelations this week under oath. Uh, on the witness stand in the Planned Parenthood, uh, let's see, Center for Medical Progress, um, Planned Parenthood case. Uh, so on day six, I'll just read this paragraph. On day six of the civil trial against the Center for Medical Progress, David Delighton would be the center uh, figure here in all of this. Um, yeah. Planned Parenthood doctor, which I just hate the use of that word, but anyway, Mary Gatter, she's the former medical director for Planned Parenthood Los Angeles. She described their fetal tissue program acknowledging uh, that they were, quote, used to getting a set fee for each specific specimen. That mm-hmm. That is the selling of baby body parts, which is exactly it, 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 yeah. what the videos, um, you know, alleged. Yeah, absolutely. No question. When you when you have to put a price to the product, uh, you, then you're selling the product. I mean, it's uh, it's stunning in its dimension. But we, this is what we knew uh, that, you know, David Delighton and, and his team exposed years ago. And mind you, has not budged federal funding for Planned Parenthood from the congressional from the at the congressional level. Uh, the 114th, I think, uh, Congress came and went, unified Republican, supposedly pro-life government in both chambers and a Republican president signature and did not defund Planned Parenthood with federal dollars. Now, the uh, Health and Human Services Department has made some rule changes that allows states to defund them if they want to uh, from their state uh, coffers. Um, but this revelation has come and gone, and now we see uh, in a court of law under oath uh, that Planned Parenthood had a baby, uh, a baby body part selling program. It's it's just horrific. It's horrific. It's stunning. Um, there will be more on that as this case unfolds. I think it's important for people to remember um, who who the defendants are here. It's not as if Planned Parenthood is is the one being charged here with wrongdoing. The That's people right. who brought the information forward that this is what is happening, that the, the parts of babies' bodies are being harvested during and after abortion and then sold – um, that yeah. that's that is what we all learned from the videos produced by the Center for Medical Progress. And actually, yeah. those are the individuals on trial here. And so I just yeah. think we want to keep in mind exactly what's happening and who's on which side of these concerns. Matthew yeah. Hawkins, thank well, you so much. Oh, yeah, go ahead. 
Well, I just want to point out, too, uh, on the note of hypocrisy, uh, we're in an era where we're all uh, all up in arms and uh, interested in whistleblowers at the federal level, uh, including for the president. Um, but uh, the media doesn't give any attention to whistleblowers uh, exposing Planned Parenthood for illegal activity and the selling of body parts. So uh, we only value whistleblowers often uh, when uh, when they're whistleblowing against our enemies. That's exactly right. All right. Hey, Matthew Hawkins, thank you so much. Have a great and blessed weekend. You too. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. So if you're a person of singing faith, you know Andrew Peterson, uh, whether you know his name or not. Andrew Peterson co-wrote He is Worthy with Ben Shive. I'm betting that you have sung it in the car or you have sung it in worship at your church. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. The, um, the refrain, the chorus, is about the worthiness of Jesus. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. He is. Well, up next, my conversation with Andrew Peterson on his new book, Adorning the Dark, and his new music project, Behold the Lamb of God. Um, We've got five copies of the book to give away today, so you're going to want to text me at 877-933-2484 or email me, carmen at myfaithradio.com, to enter the drawing. Remember, we need your name and your full physical mailing address to enter you into the drawing for a copy of Andrew Peterson's Adorning the Dark. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we are people who walk with others through the valley of the shadow of death. We are uh, Psalm 23 people, and we recognize that we ourselves need to be equipped to navigate grief. And so if you um, are ready to be equipped to navigate grief with humor, we've got a free online course that starts uh, this starts this next week. And so we want to invite you to sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com for the Navigating Grief with Humor online course. Take a look at the ways that humor can help a grieving heart cope and thrive. Again, sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com for Navigating Grief with Humor. We'll be right back. I recently read an article in a psychology magazine that revealed our biggest fear as human beings. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. With so many fears to choose from, I wondered what it would be. Public speaking, being alone, the loss of a loved one. I was honestly surprised when I read the result. Turns out our biggest fear is simply not having enough. We're hardwired to want more, even though most of us don't need it. Can you relate? I certainly can. I ask God every day to help me feel content with what I have, to remove my desire for more. But every so often I find myself wanting a house with more space, more clothes for my kids, and more exotic vacations. You know, it's not wrong to want more, but instead of doing that, ask yourself, what is my enough? When you know that, you can live a more content, confident, and generous life. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Thrilled to be joined today by Andrew Peterson. He really needs very little introduction for 
most folks. Um, his musical influence on the church has been great. He has written several books. Um, some things about him I didn't know. He keeps bees. He builds dry stack stone walls. He gardens. Uh, and I did know that he draws. Andrew Peterson, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, guys. Thank you. So it's wonderful to have you here. So your newest book is Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community Calling and the Mystery of Making. Um, maybe we'll start with it's your first nonfiction work. Just introduce folks to what you're doing in um, in Adorning the Dark. Well, it was written as a uh, a way of encouraging people in whatever their calling is to go and to like speak light into the darkness. And uh, it started out as a book that I was writing it, well, it didn't start out as a book at all. It started out as a journal because I was in the studio making a new record and, um, and I, you know, I, anybody out there who's ever made something knows what it's like to stare at the blank page and feel like you have nothing to offer. And, uh, and I started journaling the, the record making process as a way to kind of unstick myself, like to get the juices flowing. And, and, uh, I, after a few years, I looked back at that journal at just like how, um, full of, you know, fear and, you know, all the voices in your head that tell you, you don't, you need to stop doing it. And it's a very spiritual battle that is taking place. And, uh, and so I kind of started wondering if it would be helpful to other people to know that they weren't alone. And so I started kind of compiling essays and writing, writing a book that I would hope would be, uh, an encouragement to anybody out there who's doing creative work. Um, and you know, just to, uh, underline this part that I think everybody is always doing creative work. <laughs> you don't have to be an artist to be creative. I think that my wife, I, I, there's a chapter in the book about my wife, but, um, she doesn't think of herself as an artist at all, but, but I, I think that she's one of the most creative people I know. Um, and so the book's kind of for anybody out there who's trying to, trying to figure out how, what it means to be a Christian and to build God's kingdom. So the book, um, the book really explores these six principles of, of what is described here as the writing life, but it's really the creative life. Uh, and so I'll just outline them, serving the work, serving the audience, selectivity, discernment, discipline, and community. And we could unpack each of those principles, but you do so well in the book that we're just going to recommend people get the book. It's Adorning the Dark by Andrew Peterson, because I'd love to, um, I'd love to till this, this soil uh, of, of creativity and that each and every one of us, because we are creatures made in the image of the creator, like this is who we are. It's not what we do. It's who we are. And so when we resist creating, we're really not only giving the enemy a foothold, we're satisfying the enemy's desire to destroy that which God wants to bring forth. Yeah, it's it's putting your uh, light under a bushel, you know, it's it's kind of uh, and the thing is, like the, the there's this wonderful book called uh, The War of Art by a guy named Stephen Pressfield, who's not as far as I know, a Christian, but he ta it's a book on writing and art. And he, he talks in the book about uh, what he calls the resistance with a capital R and uh, and how like anytime you set out to make something beautiful. In, in, a, in the world, there seems to be an opposing force that wants you to stop making that thing. And as I was reading the book, I was like, well, of course there is, you know, uh, like at, as a believer, I do believe that if you are called to, um, in, in, you know, bearing the image of God, speak light into the darkness and bring beauty out of, out of, uh, ugliness or, uh, order out of chaos, that there is an opposing force that wants to s shut you up that wants you to stop. And so, um, yeah, I think that when we, when we look at our, the little things that we do every day, whether it's, um, whether you're a stay at home parent or, a, 
an accountant or um, a pastor, like every little thing that you do is has the potential to be um, a, a light in the darkness. And so um, re- kind of reframing the way that we think of the little things that we do every day um, uh, is, is pretty important. And I think, you know, I think creativity doesn't just, like I said, belong to the arts. It belongs to all of us. Setting a beautiful table, making a beautiful meal, um, you know, putting together a beautiful outfit, uh, all of these things. I mean, the the effort that I might go uh, to in order to make something beautiful that might otherwise simply be mundane or functional is a part of this. Like redeeming the creative act in nearly everything is part of what you're after here. Yeah, I think so. I, I think all these little things are telling a story. The, the, it's like the world is telling us a false story and we have all these chances to tell a better story They're in the, the rabbit room, the ministry that I'm, I'm a part of the, um, we talk a lot about, uh, the idea that feasting is an act of war. <laughs> and, uh, and the idea is taken from, from the Narnia books. There's this moment in the very, in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, when the white witch happens upon, I think it's the beavers. Maybe it's like a fox. I forget which animals that, but they're sitting in the snow, in the melting snow, having a feast. And the witch walks up and she says, what are you doing? And they were like, well, Aslan's on the move. Haven't you heard? Like we're, we're celebrating his return. And the witch gets angry and, and turns them all into stone. And so that, that idea that when we feast and we celebrate the fact that, that Jesus is on the move, that he's alive in the world, I think that there's an enemy that wants to turn us to stone and to stop the feasting. And so the question is, um, how, how, what does your life look like? How, how can you, using the gifts that you have, build that kingdom and proclaim that kingdom and, and feast in the face of the darkness? So I want to talk more um, about the book, Adorning the Dark, but let's pivot and have a quick conversation about something else that you are releasing this fall. Um, folks are looking forward to uh, the release of Behold the Lamb, the true the true tall tale of the coming of Christ. Tell us about this project. Well, the project is 20 years old this year, which is crazy. It tells you that I'm an old person now. I, I, in, music, in musician terms, I'm an old person. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, 20 years ago, kind of the beginning of my career, my first label album had come out, I think, and, and I had this idea to take a, a, a tour on the road that would tell the story of the incarnation. And so, um, and, and as a kind of a Bible nerd, like I really wanted the, the thing to be, uh, to start in the old Testament and kind of lay the groundwork. Um, so that when Jesus is born, we're kind of reminded why he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, and so it was all new songs, original Christmas songs, you know, and, and it's this narrative concert. Uh, not a play. It's just a concert that tells a story. And so we did it 20 years ago. And to our great shock, we're still doing it. And uh, the album came out maybe 15 years ago. And uh, it's just become a, a very central part of, of my life. And I'm so thankful for it that every December, me and a group of friends go, we all go on the road and, and remind ourselves and the audience that that Jesus is the center of the whole thing. And so we we were thinking about how to mark the 20th anniversary. And so we're doing a bigger tour than we've ever done. Uh, just kind of bringing as many friends as possible on the road with us. And we wanted to re-record the album because it's, it's 15 years old and it was released independently. And, and I was like the label, my centricity was like excited about the, the, the idea of helping more people, uh, hear these songs. All right, you can check out everything that we're talking about today at andrew-peterson.com. And Andrew Peterson and I will be right back.
conversation now with Andrew Peterson. You know him. Uh, he's an award-winning singer, songwriter, and author. He's kind of the father of the rabbit room. Um, for those of you who um, love, 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 love the Behold the Lamb event, uh, Behold the Lamb of God event that happens every December, this is an anniversary year for that. And so Andrew is releasing uh, a new project on October the 25th entitled Behold the Lamb of God, the True Tall Tale of the Coming of Christ. We're uh, we're talking today uh, also about his new book, which is his first nonfiction work. It's called Adorning the Dark. Thoughts on Community Calling and the Mystery of Making. Um, Andrew, you love to tell the old, old story. You are a storyteller. You help other people cultivate not only their ability to tell stories, but their love of narrative and all of the forms that narrative takes. And so um, if you could go back and tell your younger self, first of all, pick a pick that younger self out and um, tell that younger self a story. What story would you tell? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, well, I think what I would do is I would find like the 12 or 13-year-old Andrew who uh, was kind of a nominal Christian and you know grew up a pastor's kid and just kind of like uh, in the most bland way just kind of accepted this whole Christianity thing because why wouldn't I? Um, but I didn't really consider – that these stories that I'd grown up learning in Sunday school and church camp and VBS and everything were actually true, that they actually mattered. And then the other side of that was that I didn't, I didn't really realize that my love for fantasy and fiction and movies and comic books and rock and roll and songwriting, that all of those things that uh, had a, there was a place in the kingdom for a nerdy kid like me. And so I think what I would do is I would go back and I would kind of grab 13 year old Andrew and I would, I would tell him, the gospel story, but I would try to do it in a way that that woke him up, uh, in a way that that helped him to believe that that this whole thing wasn't a joke, that it was actually um, uh, the most beautiful story he could imagine. That all of the things that that thirteen year old Andrew was looking for, um, whether it was in my, you know the girls that I dated or the 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 music that I was learning or whatever it was, like the thing that I was really looking for was Jesus. Okay, I love that, and I have uh, a particular 14-year-old right now in my mind, um, and this uh, this notion that it's it's really okay for kids who um, are at this point nominally Christian, the faith is not really maybe fully their own, um, they have grown up in it and with it, and there's lots of language surrounding it, but they are living in the context of a world that speaks in contrary tones to that gospel over and over and over again. And so their fascination with, let's say, fantasy or um, or the characters that they encounter in gaming and the narratives that happen there, are there some ways to engage in those today that lead in a positive direction? I mean, I think we often hear about all of the ways that those lead in negative directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, I really think so. And I think there are, it was important to me when, when we were raising our kids that like one of the, 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 uh, most enjoyable parts of being a dad was the fact that I got to curate the art that my kids experienced for the, for a really long time. I got to decide which movies they watched. I got to decide which music, music they listened to. And it was so fun because I couldn't wait for them to hear this wonderful music, you know, or see these great movies. And so, uh, or, or, you know, to read these great books to them. And so I, uh, but I, it was also important to me that I would rather my kids hear a really great song by somebody who's not a Christian than a really bad song by somebody who is. Uh, 
like like what I wanted to cultivate in them was some discernment, like a way to look at the art that that is in the world and ask themselves, is this excellent? Is this praiseworthy? Is it true? And and to engage with it uh, in a way that was, you know, that was so that they had their thinking caps on, you know, so we would drive around and we would listen to to, uh, you know, whatever Christian, like they were way into Switchfoot when they were little, but we also listened to Paul Simon and James Taylor and Counting Crows. And when, when something came up that, uh, seemed counter to what we had been teaching them, we would have a conversation about it. And I would be like, oh, well, listen to this. He's asking questions that, that Job was asking, you know, uh, in these songs, he's not a believer, but he's wondering the same things like, what does that mean? And so I think engaging the kids and not telling them, that the the music they love or the the art that they're experiencing is 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 to be avoided at all costs but to say hey how might jesus be speaking to you or calling to you through this if if it's waking up your heart what longing is waking up inside you and and to try to um shepherd them toward the idea that that all of those things like like if there's anything that is uh excellent or praiseworthy, then Jesus is the source of all of this goodness. And so that was what I wish that somebody had told me when I was a kid, because I, there was this hard line between, uh, the Christian things, you know, and say Dungeons and Dragons or, uh, the rock and roll that I was listening to, the pictures that I like to draw the, the adventure novels. It was like, well, those things are fine. I guess we'll kind of like begrudgingly accept them. But, but what you really need to do is pay attention to what's happening over here in youth group. And, but what if youth group had been about, Hey, let's talk about how, how these things are pointing to, pointing to our need for a savior. Let's talk about like every molecule of the universe is really the Lord's. And so let's talk about how he's speaking through all of his creation. Absolutely. I was thinking there as you were uh, as you were talking, it really dispels the myth that there's any distinction in terms of space uh, between that which is sacred and that which is secular. And I think that that's it, it, it's absolutely essential to be communicating uh, in, in the way that we raise our kids and in the way our kids see us engage with uh, with culture at every level. Um, all right. One more quick question before we go. Um, you inspire so many other people. People are genuinely like they're not just fans. They're devotees. I mean, I, I have some in my own house, so I know of which I speak. Um, <laughs> who who inspires Andrew Peterson? Oh, man. Uh, well, the first thing that pops into my head is um, is the community that I'm a part of here in Nashville. Like, um, like I, I write quite a bit about this in Adorning the Dark, the the idea that community nourishes art and art nourishes community, and uh, and as much as I love, you know, you know, there are lots of bands out there. My kids are always, uh, you know, sending me these amazing new uh, albums that are coming out every day on Spotify. It feels like, um, and it's just kind of overwhelming. Uh, and that's really fun. But when it comes down to it, the music that I listen to the most and, and the, the thinking that shapes my thinking the most is this is my the people that go to church with me and the mm. people that I have uh, breakfast with every Wednesday morning at Waffle House. There's a group of guys. We've been doing it for like 10 years. Um, the people that I get to make music with, like the conversations that we have and the music that some of these people are making is uh, has had, a, I think, a far more profound influence on me than than the stuff that I just kind of listen to from afar. Well, thank you so much, uh, Andrew Peterson. His new project is Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community Calling and the Mystery of Making. Uh, and then he has also got a music project that is out soon as well. 
Behold the Lamb of God, the true tall tale of the coming of Christ. You can check it all out at andrew-peterson.com. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today on Morning with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Good to talk to you. So we've got five copies to give away of Andrew Peterson's new book, Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community Calling and the Mystery of Making. Let me remind you, if you text us at 877-933-2484, you need to include your name and your full actual physical mailing address. We can't mail people a book unless we have their physical mailing address. So you can text that to 877-933-2484, or you could email that same information to Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Tracy Workman is a art teacher in Port Lucie, Florida. She's reading Andrew Peterson's book. Do you know how I know that? Because CNN and the New York Daily News are reporting on something she posted on her Facebook page about a bird she saw in her backyard. That's right, people. That's how this platform thing works. Wednesday afternoon, Tracy Workman posted a photo on Facebook of Christian musician Andrew Peterson's book, Adorning the Dart, with the caption, Excited to start reading my new book while sitting outside waiting to see if Sonny, the Yellow Cardinal, will come and visit me again this evening. Sonny, the Yellow Cardinal, you ask? Well, that's right. That line caught everyone's attention. Cardinals aren't yellow, you say to yourself. Cardinals are red. Well, except this one isn't. And so there's a very rare bird flying around in Florida, a yellow cardinal named Sonny. This is actually the way you can capture the attention of your neighbors and friends, right? Share the things in God's creation that capture your heart and attention this weekend. All right, we'll be right back with another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.